Okay, I don't know about you, but I love history. And, and I think some of, of, of this lesson this week as I was preparing it really brought me back in, in a history sense. I don't know if it was a combination of this. I knew that Courtney and Mike were going to be here and John and they're, they're reporters. But for some reason, my brain started thinking about news. And in our day, we get our news in a number of ways. We can get it on TV. We can get it with the Internet. We can get it with a newspaper. We can get it with a magazine. We get our news in a ver- We can get it through the telephone. Um, we can get it through gossip lines. Uh, someone told me last night, I, I had a, a late dinner with a friend of mine who's a reporter, um, uh, not, not in our class here this morning, but uh, he, he writes for the New York Times. And and I was talking to him about the, the news and where we get it. And he started giving me some interesting statistics. And I said, where did that come from? Now, this is a New York Times reporter, so you figure it's going to be pretty authoritative, right? Uh, someone sent it to him in an email. I said, wait a minute. This is where you get your name. He says, no, 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 I'm joking. But anyway, I don't know where you get your news. But if you went back a couple of thousand years ago... They weren't able to access their news through the internet. They weren't able to watch it on TV. And if you go back to, say, 180 AD, you wouldn't even have a newspaper, though I tried to put one together so that we could see maybe what it would have looked like if we had one in 180 AD. What do we see? Oh, Texas Tech wins national title. That's in the the top right. Um... Caesar Commodus, who was the Caesar in 180 AD, he invented a new salad dressing. I guess that's the Caesar salad. Um, Acts of the Silitan Martyrs. That's what I want to direct your attention to. Acts of the Silitan Martyrs is a work that was written in 180 AD. And it dealt with some Christian martyrs in an area of Numidia, which is in Africa, around Algiers right now. And in that area of Africa, in 180 AD, there were a group of Christians who were gathered together before the Roman procurator. And the Roman procurator challenged them to change their belief and swear their allegiance to Caesar as God. Which the Roman curator understood would mean they would leave their Christianity behind. The the, the, the martyrs said, we will give honor to Caesar as Caesar, but we will not fear him, we'll only fear God. And he said, you know, this isn't right, this makes no sense. And he challenged them because they had a, a chest with them. And he said, what do you have in your chest? And they said, uh, we are carrying letters of Paul, a just man. 180 AD in Africa, they've got a collection of Paul's letters. In their chest. And so the, 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 the man kept pressing them. And he kept pressing them. And he said, you know, if you'll just swear your allegiance to Caesar, then this will be over with. But they would not do that. And, and he put them to death. And as we probe why, a number of the Christian martyrs were, were, were killed because of misperceptions, bad reporting. A lack of good reporting. Rumors run amok. And among the rumors run amok included the one that they would have these, the Christians would have these secret meetings 
where they did cannibalism. They were drinking the blood and eating the flesh of somebody. Now, to the pagan Roman world, what they distorted as cannibalism was what we understand to be, depending on where we come from traditionally, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, where we partake of, in some measure, depending again upon our theology, of the body and blood of Christ. But in the Roman mind and in the pagan world, they didn't understand what was going on. The sad part about it in this case is if the fella had just opened up the chest and read the letters of Paul, he could have gotten some measure of an assessment of what the folks were actually doing. Because Paul writes about communion, especially in his first letter that we call, or his letter that we call 1 Corinthians. We know he wrote more to the Corinthians than the two letters we have, so we're not sure which one he wrote chronologically, if this was his first or maybe a later one. But, but the letter we call 1 Corinthians, in two different places, Paul speaks about the Lord's Supper. So for those of you who are visiting who don't know about our class right now, what we've been doing for the last two years is studying Paul. We spent 2008 studying the life of Paul, and now in 2009 we're studying uh, the, the theology of Paul. And we've made our way through his theology of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, his view of the world, his view of sin and the fallenness of man and the redemption that's in Christ. And we're working our way right now through what theologians and scholars call ecclesiology. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means the assembling. Ecclesiology is the study of church. And what goes on in church and why it goes on and what church doctrine is. So this has been our study and, and you who are visiting are walking into the middle of it. So we're glad you're here. But we tell you that so you get kind of caught up. So this morning we're talking about the Christian practice of communion. Of the Eucharist. And what Paul has to say about it. And, and, and if we're going to understand what Paul has to say... We need to first remember a few things about Paul. Because Paul was, uh, 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 oh, I threw this on the slide, communion. There, the Lord's Supper. This would have been in, actually Paul used the word Eucharist within his letters. So, and he used also the Lord's Supper. So he's got several of those. But if we're going to understand it, we need to start with Paul's heritage. Because Paul was Jewish. He wasn't simply Jewish in the sense that he was born Jewish. Paul was Jewish down to the tips of his toes, to the tops of his head. Paul was raised in a very orthodox Jewish home. We're talking about communion, the Eucharist, uh, uh, wherever you, your tradition, uh, uh, whatever term it gives you. And so if we're going to understand what Paul had to say about it, what we've got to do is remember his Jewish heritage. Paul was not only himself a Pharisee, but his family had been Pharisees before him. That's as strict as it got. Paul studied to be a rabbi. He was from Tarsus, which is in Cilicia. Now it's southern Turkey. But his family got him to Jerusalem at an early enough age to where he could study under the rabbi Gamaliel, one of the top Jewish rabbis even today 
in the history of rabbinical Judaism. We've still got a lot of uh, Gamaliel and Hillel were the top two rabbis of that era. And so we've got to remember Paul's, Paul's Jewish heritage. Now, as he's raised or reared, excuse me, you raise chickens, you rear children. As he's reared Jewish, there are certain things as a, a, a practicing Jew that he's going to be doing every year. And if you've got enough familiarity with Judaism, and I know we've got a lot of Jewish folks who attend this class regularly, they can help me out here. But one of them is annually there's a celebration of Passover. And they're going to have a Pesach celebration every year. It's a celebration of Passover that is also called the Chag Hamatz, which is the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's a time where, where there is an actual sacrifice that's done of the Paschal Lamb. And, and this sacrifice is done in an annual fashion to remember when God passed over the Jews as he was visiting death upon the firstborn in Egypt. Did you see the movie with Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments? Then you may remember all of this stuff. Okay. But just in case you didn't, I thought about bringing a movie clip, but decided instead we'd do it this way. What I brought this morning is my copy of uh, one of my copies of the Tanakh. This is the Hebrew Bible. This is published by uh, JPS. That's uh, the Jewish publication. This is like official, isn't it, Rick? I mean, this is like this is like uh, the Jewish Publication Society. Okay, so so. We're, we're going to see how they translate this stuff into English. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 12 because that's where this unfolds. And look at it with me briefly. Let's do this together. God says to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. This is where you're going to start your year. It shall be the first, the first of the months of the year for you. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that on the 10th of this month, each one of them is going to take a lamb to a family, one lamb to a household. Now, if your house is too small for a lamb, then you can join with your neighbor and do whatever works proportionally. Let's be Careful about this. But you're going to contribute according to whatever the household's going to eat. This isn't the way to freeload. Okay? God's like paying attention to detail. Your lamb shall be without blemish. You're not going to offer here the runt of the litter. You're not going to offer the ugly one that you're trying to get out of the breeding herd anyway. It needs to be the pick of the litter. It needs to be a yearling male. Male. And a yearling, which is a key age. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You keep watch over it until the 14th day. And all the assembled congregation of the Israelites are going to slaughter it at twilight. This is not one that the priests alone slaughter. This is one, the only sacrifice, where all the Israelites together are going to slaughter it. And rabbinical history teaches us that at the time of Paul... In the temple in Jerusalem, that's the way the sacrifice was done. It was the one sacrifice where not just the priests, but all of the people joined together to do it. Then they take some of the blood and they put it on the two doorposts and the lintel 
that's the header, of the houses in which they're to eat it. They'll eat the flesh the same night. They'll eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread. That's the matzah, right, Rick? Matzot is unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw. And you don't cook it in any way with water, but you roast it. The head, the legs, the entrails over the fire. And don't leave any of it over until the morning. If any of it's left till morning, you got to burn it. It's a one-time sacrifice. It happens one time. This is how you're going to eat it. You gird your loins. You got your sandals on your feet. You got your staff in the hands. And you eat it hurriedly. It's the start of a journey. It's a Passover offering. Passover offering, Hebrew, that's Pesach. Okay? That's our Hebrew word, Pesach. For that night, I will go through the land of Egypt. And I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast. And I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt. I, the Lord. And the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be to you one of remembrance. You'll celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout the ages. You'll celebrate it as an institution for all time. Seven days you'll eat unleavened bread. On the very first day you'll remove leaven from your houses. Whoever eats unleavened bread from the first to the seventh day, he's cut off from Israel. It's that important. It's that careful. And this is what the, 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 the Jews were told. And this is what Paul grew up with. Paul grew up annually celebrating this. And when he's in Jerusalem, the special way, Paul would help participate with the slaughter. Now, somewhere, somehow, I would suspect someone asked exactly how the blood of this unblemished lamb has anything to do with God passing over. And it was a commemoration but it was an institution that God put and it's one that they followed. Now, Paul followed it. He did it year in, year out. We know today the tradition has grown to include what we know in great detail. Back then, we know the children were involved, but we don't know how involved. Today, the children will ask questions. Why do we do this? And, and the parents give the answers. And it's the way that the tradition and the teaching is passed on. And we know the kids were involved. We don't know exactly how to go back that far. But this is Paul. So Paul grows up with it. Now this is important to us because as we look at communion and the Lord's Supper, we need to understand what Paul understood. And that is where it got its beginning. It's Bareshit in the Hebrew. It's Genesis. And it got its beginning... At a Passover supper. And it's called the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus. Who in Christian faith is Lord. Jesus instituted it. And so to find that. We'll leave the Tanakh aside for a moment. But let's go to uh, uh, the Christian scriptures. And I've pulled Luke. Who was a doctor and a historian. And I pulled Luke's account of this. Because Luke. Uh, goes to great detail to say he went and investigated and talked to everybody and figured it out. 
And so let's look at what Luke says. Luke says, then came the day of unleavened bread. That is the feast of unleavened bread. That's what Passover is called. On which the Pesach, the Passover lamb, had to be sacrificed. So this is the day it's being celebrated in Jerusalem. Jesus sent Peter and John and said, you go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. You follow him into the house that he enters and you tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, the rabbi says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He's going to show you a large upper room that's furnished and you prepare it there. So they went, they found it just as he told him, and they prepared the Passover. Now let's read about it. And when the hour came, he, and that's Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And when you ate then, you didn't eat sitting like we do now. They had kind of a couch thing and you reclined to eat. I've tried that at home. My wife is convinced that's not polite. I tried to show her the scriptures. And I accused her of not being very literal when she reads her Bible. She won. And Jesus said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it, look at this, until the Passover, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, until the Passover, until the sacrifice of a lamb that will bring God to pass over the death of the people and have them dressed and ready to move on in life to a promised holy land to redeem them out of a slavery. I won't eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then the, the meal itself is one if you've never gone to a Passover feast, you need to befriend a practicing Jew and do it. It will enrich your Christianity immensely as you understand. It's what we said in class a month or two ago. We've got to remember, we, uh, at my dinner conversation last night, it was fascinating because um, um, the fellow that I'm talking to is Jewish. His wife grew up um, uh, uh, Anglican. And, and so we're having a discussion about just where we all come from different faiths. And, and they asked me what I knew about Jews for Jesus. And I said, well, you know, here's the little bit I know, blah, 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 blah. And they said, just doesn't that seem like an, an oxymoron to you, Jews for Jesus? And I said, well, actually, the last time I talked to someone from Jews for Jesus, he said the oxymoron are Gentiles for Jesus. Because our, the Jewish Holy Scriptures are our Holy Scriptures too. I mean, we're grafted onto the tree, as Paul says in Romans. So I, I, our roots are right here. We're just these wild branches that God added on, okay? So Jesus takes a cup, and this is at the end of, of the Passover dinner. And when he'd given thanks, which, was, which is and was a very Jewish thing to do, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, the Greek for that is Eucharistio, that's where we get the word Eucharist from, when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten. So this would be, I guess, the fourth cup, if I remember right. Saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this is the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is what we have. And this is what Paul writes to the Corinthian church about. Now, by the time Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, he's writing to a church that's made up not only of Jews, but also of Gentiles. But it's a church that Paul established. And so Paul would have taught them the the, the process of partaking of this. And we know that the early church did not do it simply on the Passover. The early church did it regularly, seeing it now as a commemoration not simply of what God had done in Egypt, but seeing it actually as a fulfillment of that. So the Egypt sacrifice of that unblemished lamb is, is a foreshadowing of what God would do through the sacrifice of Christ, who is considered in, in Christian understanding the lamb of God for that very reason. That's where we get the, the illustration from. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians and in two different places he talks about communion, the Passover uh, uh, Christianized, if you will. And the first place is in chapter 10. And when Paul writes about it in chapter 10 to get us in the flow of this contextually, he's not really writing about it because he wants to talk about it per se. What Paul's saying in chapter 10, he's talking about the the Corinthians having a, a problem. They're eating idol food at the worship temples. It's like a hot restaurant thing going in Corinth. You know, you can go to the temple... And you got the priests there that'll sacrifice the animals and cook them up for you there. It really was. It was like it was a great place to eat. The problem is you're eating at a restaurant that would be something like uh, uh, the, the Bulls of Dionysius. And the view was that when you're sitting there eating this food, you're dining with the God it was sacrificed to. And Paul says, Christians, you don't need to be doing it. It's not because there's some magical uh, uh, thing that says, you, you, you know, when that meat's sacrificed to the idol, that, that, that something transforms within the meat. He says, that's not it. And you're free to eat whatever meat you want to. He says, but time out. You don't go there and you don't do it participating with the idol. And so that's the point he's trying to make when he talks about communion. And so let's understand that in context as we read what he says about communion in chapter 10, starting with verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I mean, don't, don't do something that brings honor and worship to an, to an idol. He says, I'm talking to you like you're, you, you got a brain working. I speak as to sensible people. Just think about this. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. That's a very Hebrew phrase. The cup of blessing. Because in in Judaism, you offer a blessing. You're required. I'll tell you, our Christian tradition of praying over meals comes from Judaism. There's not another faith 
historically that prayed over meals like that. The pagan faiths would pray at temples. They didn't pray at homes. But in the Jewish faith, God was present and you blessed everything you ate or it would make you sick and you would die. Um, that last part's an exaggeration. Um, the cup of blessing, that it was bad if you didn't. The cup of blessing that we bless, isn't it a participation in the blood of Christ? Now, with due respect to, to, to the Catholic heritage that really every Christian shares to some degree, with due respect to Catholic heritage, I don't think Paul's saying here that something magically happens and you're actually eating the blood and uh, drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ. I think he's talking about participation in the same sense that you would at a pagan feast. It's, it's a, a, a participation. There's a wonderful set of publications that come out on a fairly regular basis titled New Documents Illustrating Early Christianity. And what they do for scholars is they publish, you know, they're finding new documents all the time, especially in Egypt because the climate keeps them around. And here's one that was found in Ankurinkus, Egypt, of all places. Um, and it says uh, the following. <laughs> Y'all read with me. Kalaise um, Hothios. Oh, wait, I've got it in English. Hang on. It's C here. The God, can we see, can y'all see that? Is that too small? It's this one right here. The God calls you to a banquet being held in the Thoerion tomorrow from the ninth hour. See, this was actually written by a professional scribe. It was your invite. This was your party invite. Here's your wrist bracelet. He's inviting you to a banquet being held in the Thoerion tomorrow from the ninth hour. The whole idea is, and you see these over and over, the God himself is inviting you. When you come to eat there, he's present. You participate with him. And I think that's the, the point that Paul's making here. The cup of blessing we bless, when you do that, you're actually participating with Christ. The bread that we break, it's a participation in the body of Christ. There's one bread. We who are many are one body. We partake of one bread. Think about the people of Israel. Aren't those who eat the sacrifices participating in the altar? He says, now what am I saying? That the food offered to the idols or anything? Or am I saying that an idol is something real? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifices... They're actually offering more demonically. It's not to our God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You don't do it. So you don't go there and be part of the demon party. You don't accept the invitation from the pagan God to come eat at his restaurant and have his party. So... What's important here is it's telling us, you know, Paul's not writing it to teach us about communion. He's writing it incidental because he's, his real point is one about don't go to the pagan feast. But in the process, we learn that for Paul, when we take communion as Christians, we truly take with Christ present with us. It is a participation with Christ. It's not something we simply do alone. 
And then we can let the theologians debate over exactly what that means. Now, if we go to the next chapter of Paul's letter, Paul does actually talk about it more directly and, and brings it to focus. And I want to look at this, and, and I'm running a little out of time, but let's look at it together, and uh, we'll do it briefly. If you'll ho- hold on with me, because we've got to read it faster. In the following instructions, I don't commend you. Okay? This is not, I'm not bragging here. You messed up. When you come together, you're not doing good things. You're doing worse things. Look, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Now, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. He's being sarcastic, by the way. Oh, yeah, we need, you know, when you read that, you're supposed to read it. Oh, we have to have factions to determine which of us are genuine. Paul frowns. When you come together, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper. If this is your attitude. You see, when you're eating, everyone's going ahead with his own meal. The Lord's Supper was actually part of a a, a bigger feast at the time. It wasn't, we've reduced it down in our American efficiency. But it was part of an entire meal. Um, Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One's hungry, another one's drunk. He's enjoying a little too much. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God? Do you humiliate the people who show up without anything? You, you, here's, oh, look, here's what was going on. Archaeology tells us a lot about this. Let's get this big enough. The way houses were built then, they were built around a central courtyard. And so you've got a central courtyard here. And one of the rooms off of the courtyard would be called the triclinium. It's Latin. The triclinium is the, um, it's the dining room. But we've seen these. You can see them in Ephesus, in the excavations there. You can see them in Pompeii. The triclinium will hold about 10 people reclining on a couch, maybe 12. So the Richies all go into the triclinium and they bring their box lunch from... While those who can afford McDonald's and Jason's Deli are relegated right here and they don't have a place to lay down and some of them can't afford anything, but it's church, they're going to church. And the rich people are already, some of them, three sheets to the wind by the time these other people are even showing up. And Paul says, look, you think you're doing really good things because you're honoring the Lord with his supper. You're not eating his supper. You're not doing that at all. This isn't the Lord's Supper you're eating. You're despising God when you do this. This is the opposite of what God would want you to do. So am I going to, what shall I say to this? Am I going to commend you? Heavens, no. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. I taught you about this, he's saying. And I taught you what I caught from the Lord Jesus. Whether directly or indirectly, we don't know. But the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's not what you're doing. He says, In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup's the new covenant in my blood. You do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds this, the quotation marks end. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
So a person ought to examine himself and so eat and drink of the cup. Now, what's Paul saying here? What's, what's the, the point of all of this? Well, if we go back, we know that the church was doing this regularly. Acts, the history of the church, tells us that the church was devoting itself to the apostles' teaching. They were devoting themselves to fellowship. They were devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. They were devoting themselves. They were doing this. We can read in Acts later where Paul is traveling. The Passover is finished. And a couple of weeks after the Passover, Paul says he's going to stay in Troas on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. So they're doing it on a Sunday morning, not as part of the Passover. Paul stayed with them, started preaching, went past midnight. What a guy. You know, people say, man, what an amazing man. No, I think he's amazing. And the people who actually stayed and listened. I'd have left. Um, maybe. Uh, hopefully not. But if we look at what they were doing there and we examine Paul's letters and we read 1 Corinthians and we read chapter 10 and we read chapter 11, then what we've got is an understanding that helps us realize, first, the context of what was going on. It wasn't simply the, the, the Eucharist as we might know it in a higher church service or the Lord's Supper as we might know it in a lower church service. But it was communion that was taking part as part of a larger meal, what scholars call the agape feast. Agape is a Greek word for a selfless love. And, and, and it was anything but. It had turned into a free-for-all meal where the rich people are eating the rich foods and the poor people are eating the poor foods or no food at all. There's no sharing. There's divisions. They've come up with these wild justifications for it. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, the idea of what really happened had been lost and it galled Paul no end. Because Paul was first and foremost a Jew. And Paul says to the Philippians, he's still a Jew. He's still a Pharisee even as a Christian. And Paul knows that what happened with Christ and what Christ was saying is a fulfillment where God says, I am going to slay a paschal lamb. And I am going to take the blood and paint it over the people. And those who have the blood of the lamb will be protected from death and will be my people and I'll bring them into a holy land and I'll do it together and neighbors do it together. And it's not a sacrifice the priests do for the people. It's a sacrifice all the people do together. And how on earth were the Corinthians turning that into a chance to party with the people they like and treat like garbage the people they don't? And Paul's very upset about it. And in the process, Paul says, look, for Paul, I dare say for us, communion points in three directions. When you partake, first, you remember Christ. You go back and you remember what Jesus did. Jesus was not a showman. Jesus was not out for Jesus. Jesus was the kindest Humblest sacrifice. The Christian writers understand that he was an enactment of Isaiah's prophecy. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he didn't put up a fight. Because it was his purpose. 
Abraham, you remember the Bob Dylan song? God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want to, but next time you see me coming, you better run. Abe said, where you want this killing done? Bob missed it here. Because then Bob said, God said, down on Highway 61. I don't know if that's the real highway that goes up that mountain or not. But I do know the story. And Abraham takes Isaac and he's about to sacrifice Isaac. And God says, time out. I appreciate your faithfulness. But to be candid, you killing Isaac really doesn't do anything. I'll provide the sacrifice. Temporarily, that meant a ram caught in the thicket. But the real son to be sacrificed that would carry meaning was the truly unblemished, without sin, lamb, male child. And that's what the Paschal Lamb was. So Paul says, you remember Christ. Christ said, remember him. He's fulfilling in the kingdom of God the Passover. But there's more to it. He says, also, you discern the body. And he doesn't simply mean ourselves. He means us as a group. If I've got some grievance against Gwen, which heaven knows I'd have no reason to have, but how dare I sit with her and partake of the body of Christ if I can't resolve my issues with her? Because we're one. Christ has forgiven her of anything she's done wrong. He's forgiven me of anything I've done wrong. Why would I hold it against her? How can I hold a grudge God doesn't? What right would I have? So Paul wants you to not only discern yourself and your own attitudes, but he wants you to discern the body and he wants you to discern the body of Christ. So the, the, the celebration points to the past. It points to the future or present, but it also points to the future because Paul says we do this until he comes. When our conversation last night, my friends uh, said to me, I, I said to one of them, I said, so... All right, so where do you land on all this religion? And he said, well, he says, I figure there's, I'm somewhere between there is a deity and an agnostic. He said, I don't really know. He says, I can't figure that if there is a God, he's too wrapped up in us because the atrocities that happened in the 20th century couldn't happen if God really cared. And I said, actually, you could probably say that same thing for any century if that's your limited worldview. I mean, how could the things that happened in the 1800s have happened? How could the U.S. have had slavery in the way we had slavery for, for hundreds of years? How could uh, the Crusades have occurred? Some of the, the best things in the world have been done in the name of God, but some of the worst things in the world have been done in the name of God. And I said, if you want to dump it all at God's feet, then you can ask that question. The problem is, you see, from my worldview, it's not just God. I do believe there is, is evil at work as well. And so you, you've, you've, got, you've got two things at work, and, and, and we're stuck here deciding where we want to land and what we want to do. Which camp are we in? Who is our Lord? As Bob Dylan again said, you've got to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. This is a Bob Dylan lesson. Um, so that 
That is a proclamation that I am going to honor Christ and I'm going to remember Christ. I'm going to discern the body, but I'm also going to do it remembering that he's coming back. That this is not the end. And I'll do that in a number of ways. One of the ways I'll do it is, is when the Lord's Supper is open to abuse, I'm going to stop it. Because my Lord's paying attention. So if the Lord's Supper is something that's splitting the church family apart, I'm going to stop it. Because that's not what the Lord wants. So coming attractions. If you're visiting, you can get them on the internet. I haven't decided what we're doing next week. We'll either do charismatic gifts or we're going to do Paul in relationships because there's an interesting twist of Paul in that. Or we might even do eschatology, though I doubt it. So I listed that last. That's in times and what Paul has to say about that. But for now, here are your points for home. Look back. Recognize in the sacrifice of Christ or in the, the process of the Lord's Supper, we have something that takes us back to remember Christ and what Christ did for us. He willingly gave himself so that in the consummation of history, mankind can again dwell with God, with his sins forgiven. And so let us practice communion. Let's do so regularly. At this church, while we don't do it corporately in the worship assembly uh, every week, this church has a communion room available every week where it is given to people weekly who wish to partake. Um, when we do so, let's not just remember Christ, but let's examine ourselves and, and ask, where are we today? Because days slip into days and it's real easy to get so busy and caught up looking right here that we forget to look up. So it's a good time to stop and focus. And then it's also a good time to look forward, recognizing that uh, God will come again. And to which we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much in the name of Jesus. We thank you for all of your love and all of your compassion, your foresight, which is amazing, and the ways you've laid yourself out for us to bring us back and restore in us into relationship with you. It's an honor to not only know you as God and know you as Lord, but to have you as Father and to be your child. We pray through Jesus, amen.